What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. And this week's episode, we are dealing with a high-performing individual. That's right. Entrepreneur and innovator Stephen Bartlett. He's a speaker, investor, author, and host of UK's number one podcast, The Diary of a CEO, which is an unfiltered journey into the remarkable stories and untold dimensions of the world's most influential people. I had the pleasure of joining Stephen on his show to share my story about founding Whoop, and now he is returning the favor. Stephen's debut book, titled Happy Sexy Millionaire, made the Sunday Times bestsellers list. He also joined BBC's hit TV show Dragon's Den, the UK version of Shark Tank, as the youngest ever dragon in the show's history. And he just released his second book, The Diary of a CEO, The 33 Laws of Business and Life, which we dive into on this podcast. We also get into how he started investing and the entrepreneurial life. He talks about being the youngest person in the room, his role as a founder and CEO, vision, creativity, marketing, team, culture. We get into all of it. What keeps Stephen up at night, learnings and anecdotes from his newest book, the power of absurdity in marketing. This is a great example and lesson. He shares a story about spending a ton of money on an infamous big blue slide in his office and how that ultimately led to a lot of sales. And of course, how Stephen has used his Whoop in his everyday life to improve his health and wellness. We're grateful to have Stephen on Whoop. A reminder, you can sign up for Whoop for free, 30-day trial. Just go to whoop.com. Have a question you want to see answered on the podcast? Email us, podcast.whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Stephen Barlett. All right, Stephen, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Well, I had so much, uh, such a pleasure doing this with you on the Diary of the CEO, and congratulations again on the amazing podcast that you've built and this huge community around all of your interviews. Thank you. It, was a, it really changed my mind on a lot of things, and I genuinely mean that. It's one of, it's once in a while when I have a podcast guest on, what I notice is that in every subsequent conversation with my friends, I'm, I'm like preaching at them about something I've learned, and that's what happened after the conversation with you, so much so that I've actually written about our conversation in my new book. So thank you for your time and thanks for coming on. Well, of course. And we're going to talk about your new book uh, here in a minute. I want to start with you. I mean, 31 years old, you're a CEO, you're an investor in 40 companies, you are a top podcaster, I think the biggest podcast in Europe and, and growing around the world. In sitting here in this moment, like, how are you reflecting on your career? I, I don't really reflect on my career, to be honest, because I think I've done the reflection. I think I do the reflection on a daily, hourly basis. So I don't, I don't have a lot of time or see a lot of value in looking back over the last 10 years. And I think actually that's been one of the biggest unlocks in my life generally has been a practice of reflection and making that super iterative and super frequent. And I actually say to people that ask me about personal development, the single biggest personal development hack I can give to anybody, if you want to accelerate your wisdom, is by taking more wisdom from the, the hours in your day by creating some kind of reflection habit. But it's been, it's been fun and I consider myself a success if today goes well. It's kind of the frame I think through. So hyper-present. Yeah. 
yeah, that seems to be the most beneficial way to live life. I think that's right. I think it also it helps it helps us in being young relative to the people we're in the room with. Mm-hmm. When you're more present, I think you come across also as being a little bit more humble, more grounded. Mm-hmm. And you've accomplished an enormous amount at a very young age. Mm-hmm. How's it been for you? Be, you know, often being the youngest person in the room. I think it's important to realize the opportunity that that presents. And your mind can go one or two ways when you're, if there's any form of prejudice, either in your mind or in the mind of those that you're in the room with, it can, it can take the pessimistic route and see that as a disadvantage. And labeling theory teaches us that, that then that will actually become self-fulfilling. So I talk a lot about stereotype threats and you can impose stereotype threats on yourself. So you can assume that your age is a disadvantage or you can assume, as I did from 18 years old, that being young was actually probably my biggest opportunity to surprise people. And what I mean by that is walking in rooms at 18 years old when everyone in the room is double my age and not my skin color, me being aware that there might be some prejudices, because I think prejudice is actually natural and human. I think they're useful at times, that their estimation of me versus my delivery and my impact, my delivery, the delta there was impact. So someone's underestimation of you through age or whatever else can actually be a huge opportunity to create that delta. And that is what led me to be successful young. Because as an 18-year-old, they couldn't believe I could string a sentence together. (laughs) So people wanted to invest in me. They put me on stages. They got behind me. They lifted me up. And it's funny because I reflect on an email I sent when I was um, 20, when I was 19 years old. And in the email, I said I was, I was 18. And I just turned 19 by a couple of days, but I reread the email to my first ever investor. And in the email, I said I'm 18. I saw being young as a, big, a bigger advantage. Than saying 19. Than saying 19. It's fine. And I tried to hang on to my youth. And I, by the way, I think those are the same zip code, but... You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, but for me, it was like, I, I preferred being young. And there's a, a huge wealth, even being on Dragon's Den now, which is the chart tank out here. I realized that that is my USP. My USP is being able to resonate with a younger audience more so than my fellow dragons, um, some of which are two or three times my age. So. And I imagine that's, that's helped frame a lot of your marketing agency, Flight Story. Yeah. Uh, you've worked with top brands, Coca-Cola, yeah. um, Apple. Like you kind of go down the list of really successful brands. What for you led to starting that? I had no intention of starting that, but I, I think by nature, I'm a th- I think in terms of first principles. And in 2012, 13, it became really abundantly clear to me when I did my first principle analysis that social media was, had a huge sort of attention arbitrage. It was just a cheaper way to get eyeballs. And regardless of conven- conventional thinking, saying all these negative things about social media, the thing, the skill I've always had is being able to focus on what's true, regardless of the noise. And at that time, it was clear to me that I could do posters, flyers, and a lot more of the tra- traditional stuff, which I was trying to do for my own company at the time. But the thing that got us 2 million downloads on an app in an afternoon was doing this thunderclap on Twitter, where I got 50 social media accounts that we either owned or didn't own, and got them all to talk about the thing without posting a link to download the thing, and used high emotion in all the tweets. So they were, it was a game that we co-owned at the time. We got 50 of these social media accounts to say, I'm absolutely addicted to Tippy Tap. I'm just smashing my phone on the floor. And we'd post photos of smashed phones. We never told people to go download it. We never told them what it was. But trended number one, two million downloads. So you couldn't unconvince me 
of the power of this medium when harnessed in the right way. And that's actually a really important point because when, when innovation happens and there's new marketing channels or there's new opportunities, skepticism and pessimism is actually, for me, often a, a sign that it's causing cognitive dissonance. It's causing psychological discomfort for the incumbents. It's challenging them in some way. So when we think about AI, we think about blockchain, we think about social media, so like Web 1, Web 2, Web 3, all of those have caused that same pessimism and cognitive dissonance, which have proven to be an indicator of an important opportunity. So now, actually, if I'm doing something and there isn't, and it's not pissing off the incumbents, I almost assume that it's maybe not the opportunity I thought it was. Yeah. And you, you must piss people off. Yeah, it's one of the laws in the book. I just think um, I've interviewed a lot of founders and the founders that are able to cut through in industries are able to spend less on their marketing do so because they create what I would describe as a cult behind the brand. Now, one of the in one of the chapters in my book, I talk about how to create a cult and I actually do some studies on cults and what makes them cults. And one of the defining traits of a cult is they believe something so passionately they believe they're right about and the, the world often thinks they're wrong about the thing and great brands whether it's like the brew dogs of the world or um a ton of brands that i case study in the book they all have that where they're so strong and clear in their values that the outside world have an adverse almost allergic reaction to it and i've spoken to so many founders who say we piss off the 80 percent to get to the 20 percent who believe in what we believe and if you're and in marketing, I've come to learn that indifference is the least profitable outcome. If there's indifference towards your messaging, um, you've got a real problem. And when I say indifference, I mean when people don't care either way. In fact, on the walls of my office 10 years ago was make people feel something either way. And the inevitable outcome of making people feel something deeply is you'll make another group of people feel something deeply as well. It won't be the same thing, but it's an, it's an unavoidable consequence. And great brands... They know who they are, they stand by their values, and they really do piss people off at some point because it's an inevitability of you know, getting to that 20%. It's an amazing and challenging thing to harness within a company. You know, that the, what are those values that we believe so strongly that we're comfortable alienating other people about? Founders do that well. Yeah. And appointed CEOs can't quite cut it. Well, founders also, I think, earn a little bit more credibility to make that bet. The challenge with being an appointed CEO is you're you're being judged by a board of directors more closely. You're being judged by you know the two or three other people who weren't named CEO who are reporting to you. You know, and so in those cases, you're actually you run the risk of what you just said, which is trying to please everyone and landing in indifference. And also, you you've been at Whoop since day one. So I was going up your yeah. staircase earlier and you've got, you know, you've like numbered the staircases. Yeah. And being an appointed CEO is kind of like coming in on staircase number seven. Yeah. You don't have the context of the previous six staircases, which actually d determine the, the future staircases. So if a founder can look backwards and forwards, whereas an appointed CEO can only really look forward and they don't have the information of the past. And that information of the past is really where I think as founders, we build our conviction to the point where we can go to a CFO and say, we're doing this. I just know it. <laughs> And you almost have to like justify why you believe it in words and in uh, data and metrics to a CFO, but you just know it. Totally. How much of your identity in thinking about your role today is as CEO versus is as founder? 
super interesting. Um, I I don't think I'm a typical CEO, which is kind of funny because my podcast is literally called The Diary of CEO, but I don't think I'm a typical CEO if there is one. I think, to be fair, as is the case with a lot of CEOs, the thing I'm good at is understanding what the future looks like and the opportunity that is coming. I'm really good at the creative stuff. So anything in terms of understanding the end consumer and how to get them to take a certain behavior, it's no surprise that the two subjects that um, I did in school were psychology and business. And I used to steal the psychology textbooks. I got kicked out of school for poor attendance in the other subjects. But those, that was my obsession and it still is today. So vision, marketing, psychology, creativity, team culture. Finance, process, operations. There are much better people at those things than me and I surround myself with them. And I defer and give that those responsibilities to them. But I don't believe there's anybody better that I've encountered at building team culture, vision, creativity, marketing, and those kind of things. And it, like innovation is within that. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like you anchor more to the identity of the founder, just for yeah, the way you're talking about it. I found over time, it was helpful for me to think more about what it meant to be a CEO. Because the founder part comes so naturally, yeah. right? Like that's the that's sort of the DNA of building a company. It's it's the gut reaction feeling that you have. It's the it's the willingness to be stubborn in the face of a bunch of people disagreeing with you. To me, those feel like founder things that yeah. you kind of can come back to. Where I've I've found an advantage to thinking of myself as the CEO in the context of running a company that's 500, 600 people. Mm -hmm is as it relates to processes and you know operational cadences and working with a board of directors or working with investors like there's a certain um maturation that i feel like that's that's been productive for like in thinking of myself as a manager as much as as a founder you know in the earlier days of running a company so much of a company's output can be from your individual contributions and then you get to a certain scale where, you know, almost a hundred percent of your output needs to be that of managing the people around you. And so it's just an it's an interesting shift, and it's a little bit of a mindset thing. Like, am I the founder today, or am I the CEO today? I'm not surprised that the founder of Whoop would be interested and decide to make that shift. Yeah, because it's about process, you know, data, information. So I'm not surprised that, but I've sat with founders of so many companies where the founder's gone, that's just not who I am. I have no interest in being that person. You know, Ben Francis is an interesting example from Gymshark, how he, he started as a CEO. The minute the company hit 30 people, he removes himself from the role. He then goes and works in every department in the team for the next seven, six years, then appoints himself back as CEO again after seven years. Huh. And then Huel, which is the fastest growing e-commerce company, again, I'm an investor in that business. He, he, was the he was the founder and CEO. The minute it got big, it bounced. He said he appointed a CEO and he's just the founder and he plays the visionary creative product development role. And that suits him. So I think self-awareness is really the key here. Self-awareness is, is a good point, yeah. Is like, and then Richard Branson, I sat with him in New York for two hours and I was talking to him about that. And he's the reason I, I wrote this chapter called Ask, Ask Who Not How because he's 55, 55 years old, I believe, when he's in a meeting and they're talking about revenue, profit, um, net profit, gross profit. And he hasn't got a clue what they're talking about. He's currently running at that time the biggest group in Europe under the Virgin Group doesn't know what they're talking about. So someone pulls them out of the meeting and draws a picture of a sea and they put a net in it and they put fish in the net and go, Richard, that's your net profit. He goes, right, got you. 
55 years old. Yeah. And he always, he goes, you don't really need to know any of that stuff to be a successful, to be a successful business person. Yeah. Um, you just kind of need to know three numbers roughly, but even then, just make a really great product. <laughs> well, I think this theme that we're also touching on is the notion of what it means to be a CEO has evolved a lot. Mm-hmm. And especially, I think, for our generation of, of folks becoming CEOs, it's, it's a more self-aware, more empathetic leader, if I were to sort of stereotype. I think it's it's someone who is you know driving for answers anywhere in an organization. Mm-hmm. You're, I, I feel like the the case study on a CEO twenty years ago was a little bit more hard nosed, a little bit more hard charging. Mm-hmm. This, this is this is what we're going to do. You know, a little bit more Harvard Business School case study, right? Well, Consulting be, background. Where, where business is coming from these days, a lot of them, well, it's a kid in their bedroom who's 18 and knew something about TikTok. Click, right. this, button, yeah. click this button on Shopify and the thing just starts selling loads of units. What they were good at is making TikToks. Yeah. So what, what you then see happen is they create this huge business accidentally. <laughs> yeah. They're now technically the CEO and founder. And I say to founders all the time, like, make sure you get out of your own way. Because, That's a huge thing. You know? Because there, there's, this, there's this public pressure for you to remain as CEO, irrespective of whether that suits your skill stack. So the self-awareness to get out of your own way, which is what, why I always praise Ben at Gymshark, him going, when they hit 30 people, I thought, this is not for me. If you've got an ego, relinquishing the title as CEO, which has been sort of glamorized in society, it's the person people want to interview, takes a mindset that says, I don't care about being... I care about being successful, not about being right or like, or the fame part of it, right. the glamour. And it's funny because that is actually the route to being right and the fame. That's what I say to founders. Like, if you want your company to be successful, get out of your own way. If that means you don't be CEO and you go work as a marketing intern, that's going to make you look like a rock star in 10 years because you're the founder of this business. But it's self-awareness, which is hard. Where do you feel like these lessons are coming from for you? I mean, you're imparting wisdom that feels, you know, much deeper than your, your age or the years that you've been at it. I'd say two things. It goes back to what I said at the start about introspection. Because I think you can run the course of a 24-hour day and naturally, without introspection, you might get, let's just say, um, you might get four points of wisdom from that. If you, if you have a process where at the end of the day or the week, and my process has been the obligation to create content. The single biggest driver of my personal development has been the obligation to create content, not the desire to, knowing that if I don't post at 8 p.m., there's a problem, right? That means that in that 24-hour experience, I might get four times the amount of wisdom from that 24-hour experience, just because for three years, at 8 p.m. every day, I had to post a quote. So I could be on holiday in Barbados with my girlfriend, and she would know at 6 p.m., I needed two hours to think of something to say. And as the Feynman technique um, dictates, the way to really learn is to experience something, to write about it, and then to try and teach it to other people. That's the essence of learning. They say the, most, the person who learns most in the new classroom is the teacher. So having to do that every single day based on what happened that day is the biggest personal development hack I've ever seen in my life. So imagine, you know, I go through the day, my girlfriend's arguing with me because I'm working too much. And then at 8 p.m. that day, I need to think of, I need to put that into 140 characters and tell the world in a way that's going to resonate with them. So I write the quote, 
if we're in a relationship, I want to be, be your second priority. I want your first priority to be you, your life, and your future. Because if we're happy alone, we'll be happy together. I posted that because we had that argument that day. And it taught me something really fundamental. And that, that goes viral. It's actually what was my most successful quote of all time because it just, just took off in the world. And it, and it taught me something about writing as well, which is you want to be counterintuitive. If we're in a relationship, I want to be your second priority. It right. goes against the grain. So I did that every day for three years. I found truth in my day and I shared it with the world. And that is the essence of learning. So the teach it principle is a pretty amazing concept. Teach it to a 10 year old is the key. Yeah. So you've got to be able to simplify your, your evidence that you understand a concept is your ability to simplify it. When you meet people and they use complicated words, it's probably because they don't understand the thing they're talking about. So um, you want to learn something, you want to then write about it, and then you want to teach it to a 10 year old. And if you teach it to the 10-year-old, this is just a hypothetical 10-year-old. If you teach it to the 10-year-old and they don't understand it, you have to go back to the top, which is you have to relearn it yourself. And then you have to write about it, and then you have to try and teach it to a 10-year-old. Yeah, and your, your evidence that you understand something is other people's comprehension of it, I think. Like, you were able to... If that's your mission, your mission should be able to be understood. Do you, do you feel like you have a personal mission today? <laughs> Maybe the hardest, maybe the hardest question anyone could ask me because life is so multifaceted that I have many personal missions in my relationship with my dog, with my family, with my businesses. But I would say the overarching one is to, to see, see where my potential is. I've said that for about 20 years now, genuinely 20 years. Like I think I want to know where my potential is. And I think I actually create my potential every day. To push, yeah, to push your potential and see what you're capable of. See where I'm, yeah, exactly that. And it's moved off into the future as I've achieved things. But that is, that is the thing that I think is the most interesting. As it relates to like my working characteristics, I will be happy if I have a sense of forward motion in my life. I think all of your team members here will feel the same. They have a sense of forward motion in their life, which we call the progress principle. So Harvard Business Review interviewed thousands of people in work. And the days they reported highest happiness was when they had a sense of progress. It also speaks to why when I interviewed Sir David Brailsford, who took the depressed, unsuccessful English cycling team and made them the best to ever cycle, he said to me, okay, the marginal gain things really matter, which is making the pillow softer and the bottles bigger. The overarching thing that nobody talks about is when we found these tiny gains, which are the easiest to find, much easier than big gains, we felt like we were going somewhere. So on a psychological level, a team that were depressed and thought they were down and out, just by finding these small gains, we felt like we were going somewhere and that led us to find more gains. It created this psychology within teams. So progress, sense of forward motion, challenge, which is a subjective thing. It's different from for everybody in this room. Everybody needs a different depth of pool to swim in, to be engaged. If they swim in the same depth after a year, you'll notice it. People will come and ask you for meetings about their, their future. Right. <laughs> I get all the time. And I think in my head as a CEO, I can tell you, I should know, I think I do, the depth everyone in my team is swimming at. And my job is to keep them at the, the depth that keeps them engaged. Like game psychology says, we don't want to do the same level, level of difficulty on repeat. We'll lose right. motivation. And if it's too difficult, we'll lose motivation. High degree of autonomy and control, super important for me in my life, for all, all my team members. We have disease and lots of other psychological issues when we don't have control and autonomy. Subjectively meaningful goals, so things that are subjectively important to me. And as I'm sure you've noticed, you ask every member of my team why they're here, different reasons. I don't care. Yeah. As long as they have one. Right. Um, and lastly, working with people that I love in a supportive community, which is why I'm bullish on getting people together. 
Well, the, the, the thing that's very easy to observe is just a, a real growth mindset that you have for yourself. Like you constantly, you strike me as someone who constantly wants to be growing and evolving. It doesn't seem like you take that much satisfaction in where you were yesterday. It's all about the next, yeah, the next battle, so to speak. And is it, do you think, do you think that's everyone? No. Do you think it's everyone at varying degrees? I think it's I think it's most people who have achieved the success you have at your age. Okay. So you don't think it's you don't think everyone requires a little bit of growth. Or well, I'm defining growth mindset maybe slightly differently then because I think everyone wants well, let's I think we're talking about motivated people right now. I think motivated people generally want some form of growth. When I think about a growth mindset, I'm thinking about people who are saying to themselves, how can I get 1% better today okay. and every day for the rest of my life? Yeah. And I, I don't know that that's as common as a thread, even amongst motivated people. Interesting. And I think that people may also have certain behaviors or, or styles that undermine a potential growth mindset. I've come to learn from interviewing a lot of CEOs that they all seem to have these defining traits or like biases that have manifested in the products they created. So as a CEO, what are the, the traits or biases or the, the frame that you think through that you've come to learn is different that is correlated to what, you know, what you've created with, with Root? Well, as it relates to the product specifically, I think the biggest bias I've had is this notion of it needs to be worn 24-7. Mm. And that is a framing created a whole number of design decisions that followed. So in the case of the research I did for Whoop, you know, 12 years ago, it turned out a lot of the interesting physiological data points were not a moment in time, but they were an evolution over time. Mm -hmm. And so if you could measure them 24-7, not just in short periods, because so much of the technology I was researching, you know, it'd be a heart rate chest strap that you could wear during exercise. It'd be a sleep lab that you could visit once a year. It'd be an electrocardiogram that you could see at a hospital for a period of time that you're in a hospital. Like it was these, it was these slivers of time. And so I thought the power to, to health monitoring was if it were continuous. And so a lot of the bias in building Whoop the product has been, I would say, a relentless focus on how do we make it 24-7. And so then so many decisions have flown, you know, followed from that. The idea, for example, that it doesn't have a screen on it is in part drawn from the fact that we want you to wear it all the time. If it has a screen, then it's a watch and then it's competing with other people's watches and you're going to take one watch off to wear another. The idea that you can wear a modular battery pack to charge it without taking it off. Again, back to 24-7 wear, never take it off. The fact that it's largely material and doesn't look that much like technology, well, that starts to blend into aesthetic and fashion and identity, which again, make it something you can wear 24-7. So I'm curious about that because the other only time that I will ever take my loop off if is if there's a real jewelry outfit clash. Mm. So if I'm doing something on like a show where they want me to look fashionable and I end up putting all my gold bracelets on and my gold rings on and my gold necklace on, even like Dragon's Den, I then have to take the loop off because it stands out too much as a clash. Well, maybe we got to send you our gold bands and some of our, you know, our dressier, uh, our dressier bands because we we've created a pretty wide array now of, of materials. But that's also where we came up with Whoop Body, okay. which allows you to put the sensor in different locations on your body. 
And so, you know, 24 seven led to these principles of the product should either be cool or invisible. And that's the first principle. Yeah. What is the, the biggest thing that most people in this building disagree with you about that you proceeded with mm. and you were right about? Well, one of the more controversial decisions in the company's history was, was changing the business model. Mm. Uh, because whenever you build a company, as you know, Stephen, like, you want to be careful how many things you try to innovate on. Right. In many cases, it's, it's worth borrowing from all the other companies who have been successful. But in the case of Whoop, we actually really needed to innovate around the business model. We were selling the hardware as a one-time high-end fee, $500. And not that many people were buying it, but the people who did buy it would wear it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so we asked ourselves, is there a business model here where you could pay way less up front? And if people fell in love with the product, actually make more money over time. And so that's where the, the idea of Whoop as a membership came from. And there was a lot of conflict, I would say, around what should that monthly rate be? How frictionless should it be for people to sign up? And I got to a headspace of we should really move in the direction of um, as frictionless as possible and betting entirely on the product and betting entirely on the brand and membership services and innovation to keep people on Whoop over time. So I would say that was it. That was a very controversial decision. And it's worth noting, it was a bet the business decision because we were seven or eight years into building the company and we were changing our business model on its head, mm-hmm. which said differently that we didn't know what our business model was yeah, seven yeah, years yeah. into building the company. And those um, big decisions, it's hard to like turn back on them if you're wrong because you create expectation. Right? There's, there's a theme I think about a lot, which is, is a decision a one-way door or a two-way door? Mm-hmm. Right? One-way door being you make it, you can't really go back and change it. Two-way being, you know, you can iterate on it and, and circle back around. And often, often I think where it's a CEO's role to get more involved is if you have a one-way door and that one-way door has pretty high stakes for your organization. What keeps you up at night? If anything well, it, it touches, I think, a little bit on the theme that you, you really you know, hammered, which is around opportunity and potential. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I feel like I'm... I'm so grateful to be in the moment in time that I'm at building the technology that I am with the team that I have, you know, my life feels really grounded and good. I've got a great relationship with my wife and my family. Like I feel like I have a huge opportunity, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to look back on this moment in five years and be like, wow, you really squandered that. And especially from, from a whoop lens, like, I think we're on the eve of this massive evolution in health, like a revolution for what continuous health monitoring can do for humans. And I don't want to wake up one day and realize someone else did it or did it poorly and we weren't the ones who made it happen. See, um, that's a fairly heavy weight to carry because that, that weight, this weight of an opportunity that you, you believe is right in front of you. And the cost of not meeting that opportunity in your mind must be regret. And you don't want, you, you know, you don't want regret. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've, I've lived life with very little regret. And so I think, uh, I think regret avoidance is a good life strategy. How do you carry that weight? Well, I don't think of it necessarily as a weight. I think of it, I find it exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Like there is an action junkie inside of me that's like, the stakes are high, 
So I'm going to rise to the occasion. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain, I think there's a, a certain enthusiasm that comes from something where the stakes are high. Do you still feel like an underdog? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, I think all, of, I, I frame a lot of it as being an underdog. One, the notion of being a 33-year-old CEO running a multi-billion dollar company, that seems like an underdog. The, the idea that Whoop is up against trillion dollar companies like Apple and Google and others, the idea that brands like Amazon will copy us and knock us off and treat us poorly, like through all those lens, we feel like underdogs. But that's also, again, a great belief system. You know, I think being underdog is the, is the ultimate way to release, to your point, that weight. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and to try and stay innovative, I guess, and keep yourself agile and stuff. Do you think of yourself as an underdog? Because you're now, you're now at a stage where you're the celebrity. You're kind of the face of young entrepreneurship. You're the so a hundred percent. And in yeah. fact, you know, in the last with success, the word complacency has increased in my team, like that as a conversation. So it's funny because. Let's just use the podcast as an example. So I've got this business third web, which is in San Francisco. We've raised a lot of money, about $31 million. And it's doing really, really well. It's in the web three space. Got my marketing agents in my fund. But if we just zoom in on the podcast, we saw that we were gaining 300, last, last month and the month before, 380,000 subscribers a month. Puts us on track. To, we're doing about a million subscribers on YouTube in 90 days. It's like really, there's nothing, there's not really a podcast that comes close to that on YouTube. And I try and play forward the psychological impact that has on a team when we were like scrappy and we were the underdogs and we were trying things and we thought that we were kind of counted out. And what happens when you're like the biggest in your country or the biggest in right. Europe? What happens to the behavior? Do you, do you continue to experiment? Do you rest on your laurels? Do you play defense too much and, and not offense? Um, and that really has like consumed my thoughts. So I did, did something about it, which was I appointed a head of experimentation in our team. So we now measure the amount of experiments we do, but we're driving hard to increase the rate of experimentation. Did a big presentation to my team about this thing, about the Kaizen philosophy. That's from the Toyota production system and the 1% gains. And really try to tell my people that the, the thing that's going to make us number one in 10 years time in the game that we're playing is if we conduct more experiments in our competition at a faster and measured rate. Like that is the number one thing I'm going to measure over the next 10 years. But then also realizing that this is a 10 year game. And if I look at someone like Rogan, the thing that's got him to be number one outside of his talent is 15 years of compounding returns. He managed to stay the course for 15 years. And then I looked at all of the podcasts that used to be number one in our country. And the reason why they all fell was lack of focus. Every single one. And I can tell you exactly the, the decision they made, either for money or a, away from the thing that was resonating with their core audience that caused them to fall. The thing we need to do is the hardest thing of all, which is to keep going. Yeah. Because temptation is, is super high when you're doing badly and when you're doing well. <laughs> There's different types of temptation. One of, them, one of the temptation is to abandon it. And one of the, the other temptation is to do too much stuff. So in my team now, the big thing I care about is are we experimenting as fast as we used to when we were small? And we are. In a way that is like obsessive. Like I could tell you about some of the things we do on the podcast and you'd think it was just totally crazy. What's an example? Uh, last couple of weeks. So I haven't, last, last week, I glued, we glued a magic trackpad under the table where I interview all the guests. And if I just touch the magic trackpad just with my finger once, 
it saves exactly what me and the guest just said. It sends it, so it records everything using AI. It sends it to my team. That sentence is then A-B tested as a Facebook ad with five pounds behind it to see if it's resonant. That will then make up the description, the title, the thumbnails. So before the episode goes out, there's 90 A-B tests. So if we did this, this was my podcast yeah, that's now, cool. I would be just touching the chair with my finger every time you said something interesting. That would then be sent off to my team. It would go straight into testing. And two weeks before the podcast comes out, we know. Then you'd have all the data. We know the most, yeah, we know the most emotionally resonant part. That doesn't seem, I mean. Temperature of the room. To the me, song, the, uh, the songs, the temperature, by the way, the temperature in, in your podcast is warm. I've noticed. It used to be. Oh, you're turning it down? Yeah, we moved floors because of temperature. So we moved to a, the floor below, which was completely air-conditioned, and we could keep super, super cool. People don't fall asleep. They stay awake. CO2 in the room, as I was talking to you about. Huge impact on the conversation, and I never knew that. Um, the music you play when someone walks in. So Israel Adesanya, if I play Mitzi Hustle's Dub Double Up, he, he always opens up when that song plays. And there's multiple videos of him literally crying in the stands at fights because it's that song's playing. It takes him right back. So you played that before? Yeah. Smart. Uh, you go on and on. The color of the thumbnail on YouTube, there's a 0.2% variance in different colors. An exclamation mark gives us 0.3% click-throughs. Um, the, the, the length of the title of the podcast, how many characters should it be for optimal performance? Um, how that varies across platforms. So you want to get under 75 characters on the YouTube title and on, on audio, it doesn't, it doesn't matter as much. The first line in the description on YouTube is hugely important because that appears in search results, but that's also indexed. So if this was my podcast now, if I wanted to make sure a lot of people reach, reached it, I need to find a big YouTube audience and I need to write that in the first line of the copy. So if everything we talked about today, I might go for, say we talked about one of your athletes, like, um, like someone that uses like Michael Phelps. I would put their name as in the first line of the description of the episode because then it's putting the episode into Michael Phelps and Tiger Woods algorithm. Hmm. I mean, I could go on for hours because we're doing about 40 to 50 experiments a month that are all tracked and measured. It's fascinating because you're building this massive playbook on, uh, on what's going to not just be successful probably for your podcast, but any podcast. Yeah. I, re I remember hearing Mr. Beast talk about YouTube and all these things as it relates to success on YouTube. And he said, just based on what I know now, I could go to any company yeah. and I could get, you know, get them 10 million subscribers yeah. just by following this playbook that I've built. Yeah. And there's something, there's something really powerful in, about that and kind of magical about that. I think a lot of, I think a lot of companies are so caught up in their own way that they've maybe lost sight of the fact that there's a playbook. I think it's also, it's like a, it's a mental bias towards thinking, um, is this game I'm playing luck? And is it based on talent? Or are there controllable levers here? And Mr. Beast is someone that believes the levers, there's, Control. the levers of success can be controlled. And I'm someone that believes that the levers, levers of success can be controlled. And also, maybe more importantly, that there's no such gain that is too small. So looking forward into an experiment, I might think that might yield a 1% gain. But then I can name an experiment where I change 10 seconds of the call to action on the podcast. You know, YouTubers always say, like and subscribe the video. Well, you've heard it so many times that your brain just ignores it. Wallpaper. Wallpaper. It filters it out. So you have to find a way to perk the brain's interest. Change that 10 second call to action. It resulted in a 350% view to subscription increase, which is not a 1% gain. Yeah. And so you treat every experiment as if it 
you don't, you know, you're agnostic to the return it will make, but you, there's no such thing as too small. And it's interesting because the small stuff in life, the things that are easy to do are also easy not to do. So it's like easy to brush your teeth. So it's also easy not to. It's easy to save $5. So it's also easy not to. So you can bet that your competitors are, are usually choosing the easy not to do route. And if your team chooses the easy, easy to do, like they do it, untold gains there. You're a deeply curious person and you've had enormous success interviewing people. Who are other interviewers that you've admired or you feel like you look at and you're like, the way they're doing that, that's, that's clever. So it's anybody who is, I feel is being led by curiosity and it shows. Like you can tell in an interview whether someone is asking the questions they care about, or whether they they're asking questions that someone else handed them. Right. Um, and then the other thing is listening, which is just this insanely simple thing to do. But as an interviewer, you can ask way better questions if you listen. And people, when I'm interviewing them, go to places they've never gone to. If you give them more space to talk, they can like figure stuff out on the spot. And it's funny. I remember there was one particular person I interviewed and. Um, he said something, and then I said to him, yeah, but why? And there's this like 15-second gap where I'm looking at him in the face, and he's looking right back at me. Neither of us are saying anything. Imagine 15 seconds. It's such a long amount of time. I think about this all the time. <laughs> like, the longer you can be silent for, it, it's, a, it's a sign of, of, I think, real confidence for an interviewer. Yeah, so that at the end of that 15 seconds, people actually told me they pulled out their phones because they thought they'd stopped it. Because <laughs> we just keep the pause in and he just burst into tears. And what that taught me, which I've never been able to forget, is although his mouth wasn't doing anything, his brain was. And even in silence, the brain is doing a lot. And actually, a si silence is an indicator of deeper thought. So when we have moments of silence in my studio, it happens all the time. It's it, just me staring at the person in their face. It's, a, it's actually a very powerful technique too in public speaking oh my god if yeah. you think you're losing the crowd a little bit if you want to put emphasis on something 100%. a long pause yeah right it, it just all of a sudden it, it makes people look up it yeah. makes people what's going on that was my trick i read about that as well that was my trick when i spoke 50 weeks a year was i'd walk out on stage and i'd look at the audience and i'd be silent for 10 seconds at the very start as well and people go oh it takes god, a lot of confidence to do that yeah and then I'd come in, like the Mr. Beast thing, I'd come in with some kind of extreme line. So my first line on stage, 50 weeks a year I spoke from Ukraine to South by to everywhere, was, that's exactly why you were expelled from school. You're incapable of sticking at anything you don't believe in and you always think you know a better way. Don't call me and don't call the family until you go back to university. And with that, my mum hung up the phone. Now what I've done there is I've created a plot the brain, because of all these biases, needs the answer to. What? And I've caught you off guard. Again, I've beat the wallpaper filter and I've got your attention. Now I'd take, I'd basically be selling my marketing agency, but that's how I would start. And by yeah. the end of it, you'd find out that me and my mum are now great friends. So I'd close the story off. Yeah. But uh, I really believe in that, the value of storytelling and not information as it relates to the brain. So you didn't say anyone specifically? Oh, in terms of interviews. Uh, Rich Roll, I He's great because he's really curious. I love what, I have so much respect for what Rogan does because this guy can just riff about ant holes for three hours. Like, he, is, he is a great example of, of like curiosity. 100%. Just pulling through. 
And the difficulty he has, which no one will see, is the pressure to put certain people on his podcasts that might have huge followings or that might be whatever else. And he said in an interview before he goes, the only person who decides who comes on my show after 15 years is me. And that is it. So if I want to speak to for three hours my com- comedic friend that nobody knows about Ant Molehills, that's what's going to happen. Right. That's that temptation point I talked about. This huge temptation to get this pop star with 70,000 followers, but it deviates from your principles. And I have that temptation now um, to have people on that I'm not interested in talking to because of the follower number. And he's taught me to stay the course. Yeah. And it's the same for you, right? Like you, you're, you're undergoing tremendous pressure from all sides to change the product and to be something else and to go and fill that market over there. And your ability to stay the course is something which I noticed from you, which is why I write about you in the book, like is phenomenal. Let's talk about the book. Thank you for that. The, the Diary of the CEO. 33 Laws for Business and Life. Mm-hmm. I read it, and I've read a lot of business books, and so I'll give you a lot of credit for putting something out into the world that, one, is very digestible, two, is memorable, and also, three, and probably most importantly, is impactful, you know, which I think, I think most business books really um, lack impact. You know, you, you, you get through it, and you feel like you haven't, you haven't actually latched on to something that you're going to do. You take away a few stories. But uh, anyway, in, in part, it's probably why I don't read business books much anymore. Yours is, uh, is a really, I think, nice encapsulation of how to be a better person, you know, kind of first and foremost. And so I guess I'll just start by asking you, why now? Why write this book? Um. Throughout this interview, you can see that I get really like passionate about certain topics. Yeah. Anything to do with like team culture, innovation, marketing, psychology, um, marginal gains, all of this stuff. And um, so two reasons why I wrote it for me. Going back to what I said about the teacher gets the most from the lesson. Um, and also, I think it's going to be super useful for a lot of people who are like, because they're like hard fought lessons, right? Who are slightly earlier in, in the process than me or you know, as, as is the case with the marketing chapters, who are thinking about launching something, whether it's a YouTube channel or a charity or a business, those, those are principles which should be timeless and enduring. And also it's written, as you say, for a generation, I feel like reading books. I'm one of them. Totally. And I think that, that comes through in reading it. You do a good job having quotes that are larger and smaller, yes. you know, reminding people what the law is a couple times. So there's a certain level of repetitiveness that's refreshing. It's, uh, no, I really enjoyed it. And, and I'm, you know, to be honest, I read a lot of books that I don't enjoy or I don't mm-hmm. finish. So, so a compliment to you. One thing I, I uh, appreciated was the fact that you have uh, a stage fright or you, ha- you had stage fright as a kid. And we, sh- we share that, actually. And people, when I tell people that they don't actually believe it, how did you overcome that? Repetitions, basically. That's it. And stage fright is a belief. It's a belief you have. And the, the only way that I, as I go through the process in the, the book about trying to figure out where beliefs come from and how to change them, I realize that we don't get to choose our beliefs, which is a really kind of controversial idea because people find it disempowering. 
the idea that you don't choose your beliefs. But if I said to you now, is there any belief that you could unchoose to have? No, I'm not talking about faith and hope. I'm saying a belief you currently have that you could right now unchoose to, to believe. I've asked a lot of people this and no one can tell, no one can give me an example of a belief they currently have that right now, if they chose to, they could not have a belief. And that th my thesis, and as I go through on the book is that our beliefs are based on evidence we have. Doesn't mean the evidence is correct. It's just evidence that we've subjectively interpreted and accepted as true. So that person on the playground who said you were ugly at seven years old, created some evidence which you accepted about yourself and that's now a limiting belief. The way then that you could create a new belief or losing an old one is to counteract it with new evidence. The source of that new evidence really matters because and the type of new evidence matters. If it's a belief you want to accept, you're more likely to move. In the studies I highlight, if I said to you, how attractive do you think you are at 10? And you said to me, let's say nine. And then I said, I've just done a poll of the public and they reckon you're a 10. People move up to 10. They go, yeah, fight with the 10. But if I went the other way and said, the public said you're an eight, people are resistant to move down. Same in politics. If, if, you, if we did a poll now and you're a Hillary Clinton supporter, and then I say, we've just done a poll and it turns out Donald Trump is going to win, people don't move. The Donald Trump people move, but the Hillary Clinton people don't move their opinions. But also, if we have 95% of the same existing beliefs, you're much more likely to accept anything that I say to you. Um, but ultimately, to move, remove the most stubborn beliefs we have in our life, you have to go and put yourself in a situation where you're exposed to new first-party evidence that counteracts the existing evidence you have. And it's not just looking in a mirror and telling yourself you're beautiful. You have to go out there into the world and, and put yourself on the firing line, which meant for me, in public speaking, put myself on stages over and over and over again. There's a lot of beautiful themes like that in the book. The self is the only thing to have direct control over. To master it is to master your entire world. Yeah, I think that's, um, it goes back to what we were saying about controllables. I can't control you, him, her, I can't control anybody else. But the center point of my influence in my life is the allocation of my time and um, the decisions that I make. So, Well, knowing the story you told about every day having to put something out at 8 p.m. and having to come up with a quote and having to find the right words for it. A lot of that comes through in your laws because you have these punchy laws that are memorable and counterintuitive, so you kind of grab onto them. Yeah. Th those include absurdity sells, you must piss people off, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, must never you must never disagree, which yeah. is a fun one. The absurdity law is what I, I wanted to speak to you about because it was something that once I'd realized, I couldn't unrealize comes from my girlfriend going to a gym and then coming home and saying, babe, I've just been to this gym called Bird Space in Canary Wharf. It's incredible. It's so big. They even have a 100-foot climbing wall. And then I was amazing. I joined the gym. I was going there for two years. And then when I talk, spoke to my friend about it, I said to him, it's an amazing gym in Canary Wharf. It's massive. It's huge. They even have a 100-foot climbing wall in the entrance. I've never seen anybody use the climbing wall. I've, never, I've been there for two years. I've never seen anybody go near it. I actually don't even think they use it. But the fact that I'm using the most absurd thing about the experience to tell the story of the values, but also the entire experience, I think is something that as founders we can be intentional about in the design of our products. The most absurd, inefficient, costly thing that you do says the most about everything you do. By my girlfriend telling me they had a 100-foot climbing wall in the entrance, she's actually saying, imagine how many running machines they must have. And to a, gener to a generation Z who care about social media and building their brand off that, it also says, damn, that's going to be great for my Instagram stories. Right. It's a great picture to take. Yeah. And I case studied these brands like Brewdog, who are now a billion dollar underdog brand who took on the whole drink industry. 
And the founder does crazy things. He puts he put a beer fridge in all of their showers in, the, in their new hotel chain. Nobody's talking on Google about the mattresses and the pillows. They're not talking about the useless, practi- useful, practical things. Every article is about the beer fridge in the shower. No one's drinking beer in the shower. We all know oh. that. But it's driving the brand. Tesla, the Easter eggs in the car that you can make the ludicrous mode and you know absurd mode and you can make back seats cushions yeah no one's talking about like the well people talk about some of the fundamentals but really the thing that's that's saying the most about the brand is the most absurd thing about the brand regardless of anyone uses it and the story of my company going back seven years was the blue slide in the office we were young kids we took a 300k investment when the company started taking off before we got desks i put spent thirteen thousand pounds on a big blue slide and i built a gaming room with a big blue slide that came into a ball pool Ridiculous, stupid decision. I was an idiot. Thinking forward now, I probably wouldn't have made that if I was experienced. I wasn't. It became the single biggest driver of our PR was the Big Blue Slide. Every TV company, the BBC, Channel 5, The Gadget Show, Channel 4, BuzzFeed, Vice Documentary, all centered on this Big Blue Slide because it said, young, innovative, disruptive, they think different. The best $13,000. No marketing campaign we could have done could have spoke more clearly about who we were. So I, I think that with businesses, I think how can you build absurdity into the office, the experience? So it's an amazing framing for any leader to be thinking about with their own business today. Never compromise on your health is something that, yeah. that comes up. Your, your health is, is your first foundation. Yeah. Talk a little bit about health and how you prioritize it. Yeah, it, it, I'd struggled for many years to, to care about health or to... Um, to take it seriously or to maintain any level of discipline in it. And in fact, there's two laws in the book that kind of come together to answer this. The first is the discipline equation, which I think is law number 27 or something, where I'm writing about, I started by writing about time management techniques and then to try and create a sense in the reader's mind about why time is important. I started getting the stats on how long we will have left to live. If you're 30, 33 now, you have about 17 or 18,000 days left if you meet the US life expectancy. So you've got 17 or 18,000 days left to do everything. Which actually doesn't sound like that many. It doesn't sound like a lot, does it? Yeah. And then um, from there, I start to go into time management techniques and I read that there's thousands of them. So why is there thousands of time management techniques? Why is there thousands of fad diets? Because none of them work without this thing called discipline. So instead of writing about time management techniques, the chapter ends about me trying to figure out the equation of discipline in my life. Why have I become really um, focused and disciplined with the gym, but other areas of my life I'm not? And what I found was that um, the discipline equation as I see it is when your why is, so it's discipline equals the strength of your why plus the psychological enjoyment you get from the pursuit of the goal minus the cost of the pursuit of the goal. So if you want to be disciplined, mess with that equation. Make sure you do everything you can to make the, the why strong and the psychological enjoyment you get from the pursuit and to limit the friction of the pursuit. So in case of working out and going to the gym every day, in the pandemic, I was looking at my screen trapped in lockdown and I saw for the first time in my life that health is the, not just the, the tectonic plate that sits under my life, it sits under the entirety of society and that our existing health was correlated to our health outcomes. It was like traumatic for me. And so in that equation, through the frame of that equation, suddenly my why goes up to here. And for the last three and a half years since that, since March 2021, in the pandemic, my discipline has been six, seven days a week. I'm in the gym, obsessed with my health, obsessed with every, my diet. My, um, my sleep is maybe the biggest thing in my life at the moment. You've been on Whoop for quite some time now. Yeah, it was, I really appreciate it. Maybe 
I'd, re- I'd say it was four years ago I got introduced to the brand by my friend Ashley, who just like came into our fitness group like he had been, I don't know, like he was hypnotized or he was like a disciple of the brand and he was just like he had an affiliate code or something. He didn't actually have an affiliate code. But he, <laughs> the way he was talking, you'd think he was an employee. It was, oh my God, it's amazing, showing us screenshots. And it didn't really, didn't really land with me at the time. But as I've come to realize the importance of health generally, and that it is actually the tectonic plate that my girlfriend, my dog, my family, my business sits on top of. And if that tectonic plate shakes or falls off, I lose everything. Then it's so clear from a logical mindset that that is my first foundation. And it's funny because people will like objectively know that. They'll say, of course, yeah, I get it. That's true. Because you can't argue with it. But then when you look at their calendar, they haven't their time isn't allocated against that as a priority. Right. And I think you can see someone's priorities by not what, by, I think you can see someone's priorities, not in by what they say, but in what they do. And our calendars are the better, a better reflection of what our true priorities are. So I said to myself, okay, if I do believe sleep's important, if I think my health is the first foundation, then how come it's taking up 20 minutes of my calendar a day? It should be taking up at least two or three hours a day. And it should be the first thing that I think about when I wake up in the morning. And so my calendar now is, Nothing before 11 o'clock because my sleep needs to be number one. And then um, my day starts from, from 11. So in, in the morning, like this morning before I came here, me and my camera guy over there, Will, were in the gym for two hours. That was priority number one before anything. I wake up, I look at my sleep. I then use my sleep performance on Whoop to determine my day. So there's been times where I look and I go, ah, that wasn't great. So I'll go back to bed because I'm more likely to fall straight into REM sleep at that point. Or I'll go, I'm going to cancel some stuff today. Or I'll go my workout, I'm going to just take it a bit slower today because I haven't recovered properly. Yeah. So it's now actually like, it's now helping me direct my life in a way that's so important to me. And it genuinely like, whatever, I'm on your podcast, whatever, you're examining me. No, this is what I'm... (laughs) My girlfriend has never, ever stuck with any technology. She's very spiritual. She doesn't want any... She doesn't like screens and anything. She is the same. Whoop is the first thing in her life that has stuck and that is integral to her. Is like, and we wake up, we go to the kitchen counter in the morning and I say, show me your whoop. Yeah, <laughs> just, your yeah, I want to know how she's feeling. That's, that's, the, that's the kickoff point of the day. Well, because there's a boyfriend as well, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, right, what are you at? <laughs> yeah. I want to know what I should talk to you Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. And vice versa. Because I've seen, maybe the most important thing as a CEO, I've seen this unbelievable, terrifying correlation between my sleep performance and my emotional performance. How patient am I? How good am I in the podcast? And it's so huge that it changed my life. Like the variance is so huge between getting one hour restorative sleep and getting six the other day. Jesus Christ, I was on top of the Wow, six. Yeah. What did you do to get six? I, don't, I wore the eye mask. The blue like, or, okay, eye mask. The eye mask. But also I think the day before I hadn't slept that well. Okay. So I think my, my body was just body more tired. Needed it. Yeah. So the, no, the, the sleep mask. Yeah. Yeah. Bed was, the room was cold. That um, makes a big difference. My girlfriend wasn't in the bed. <laughs> that, that can be a tough one because there's this, there's this share your bed uh, journal question. And fortunately, I can say that sharing my bed has increased my, my sleep performance. Um, but it's not, it, you know, it varies a lot by person. That's one that's highly personal. Yeah. It's not, you know, certain, generally things like dark room, cold room, going to bed consistently, waking up and going to bed at the same times. Those things tend to be 
better sleep for everyone. Mm -hmm. But then there's these interesting things that are highly personal, one of which is, did you sleep alone or did you sleep with your partner? So if I'm waking up early, my girlfriend will turn to me, she's Portuguese, she goes, sleep divorce? (laughs) Which means I'm going to go sleep in the other room tonight. And she always takes it, I think she doesn't always take it well. (laughs) It's a a sensitive thing. Yeah. Do you you ever use the uh, whoop alarm? Yeah, to, to vibrate yeah. to wake up. This is a new thing in, in mine and her life where I showed her this feature last week because she, I don't think she realized it existed, but for me, as someone that is, my priority is to get to 100% recovery or as close as I can versus getting up for anything because I'm not waking up before 11 anyway. Sure. It's been a game changer. It actually really vibrated as I walked in here today. So I just walked in through this because I got up before it. Oh, or maybe it's still on the other time zone. Maybe. Ah, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's been a huge, huge one for me. It's someone that wants to make sleep the number one and then everything to follow sleep. Um, and this is also why the sleep mask is so important because the light would interfere with that. Oh, the blue light blocking glasses or just the sleep mask? The sleep mask. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, like, so that makes your room much darker. Yeah, obviously. which means if it, if the light comes up at seven or eight, then I can, I can, Keep going for 100% sleep. That's right. Regardless of that's how great it is. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, look, we're very grateful to have you on Whoop and, you know, representing the brand. And uh, it's, been a, it's been an amazing partnership. Thank you. And um, I, I realize that it's a partnership, but I also, I don't think you can hear this too much, but the impact it's had on my life as a CEO, as a boyfriend, and as a human that just wants to feel good is huge. So it's so, I really want to say thank you for creating a product that like genuinely has made my life better. And there's not many things. I look the same every day. I have the same shoes, the same trousers, the same top, and I have this on. And I only stick to things that are really, really like moving the needle for me. And this is one of the things that um, has moved the needle for me. And it's funny because I said to my team, like I did 15 interviews last week on TV and on radio. You guys don't pay me to talk about that on TV (laughs) and radio and stuff. And in 15 of those interviews, all 15, it's a, it's a significant part of the conversation. It's great. And that is, I think, a testament to the fact that it's really moved the needle for me. And I'm now, like like my friend Ashley was four years ago to me, I'm now the evangelist in my circle. So you can't pay someone to do that. You know, there's no partnership that can create that sort of authentic relationship with a brand. So thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, incredibly grateful to have you on Whoop and thanks for doing this podcast. I think I have to close by asking you, because this is what you do on your podcast, so for folks who aren't aware, there's a diary that comes out and you as the guest, you ask a question that a future guest then has to answer. So what is the question that you would ask if you were presented with that diary? I would write into the diary. In the context of the diary, so you would then have to ask your ne- me, the next guest, the question. So I'd write into the diary, how do you think I can improve? Which means that you would have to ask the next guest how he thinks or she thinks you can improve. All right. So th- there we go. That's, that's maybe I'm going to have to ask. Him <laughs> yeah. But it's a really, it's a very nice uh, theme that you have with your podcast. Thank you. Connects them all, which I like. So thank all right. Thanks, bro. Thank you. Big thanks to Stephen for coming on the podcast, discussing performance and entrepreneurship. We're proud to have Stephen as an ambassador to Whoop. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating or review. You can check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. 
If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. If you're thinking about joining Whoop, check out whoop.com. You can actually sign up for free for 30 days. New members can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, to get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories. That's a wrap, folks. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Whoop podcast. Stay healthy and stay in the green. Thank you.